Hello, and welcome to the Race, Wealth, and Health Podcast, a podcast that serves to educate and empower while we explore the intersections of social justice, economic empowerment, and holistic well-being with the communities of color. I am your host, Dr. Joycelyn Morris, and I invite you to join me as we dive deep into the crucial topics that shape our lives, challenge the status quo, and strive for a more equitable future for all. Welcome back to this week's episode as we continue the conversation on food, power, politics with Dr. Bobby J. Smith. Last week, Dr. Smith educated us on the role of food in the Mississippi Civil Rights Movement, and this week we continue that conversation to learn about the food justice movement in present day. Let's listen in. Mm-hmm. You brought up so many really good points. One that I really wanted to touch on is the point while we brought it in proximity to the conversation around COVID-19 and fighting that off, but the idea of having access to not just food, but to nutritious foods. Because especially when I think about the old school, he said the old school food programs in terms of government cheese and stuff, mm-hmm. a lot of those things weren't necessarily the most nutritious options. Right. Right. One of the terms at least I'm familiar with before learning about food weaponization and food as a weapon, I've definitely been familiar with the idea of food deserts, right? Mm-hmm. What they call food deserts, where people can't either have limited access to food or definitely limited access to nutritious foods. Mm-hmm. And I remember doing a study in, as part of my dissertation, I was looking uh, here locally at a, a city that has historically been a Black city, and even just looking at the access to different resources, which grocery stores were one of them. And definitely a limited variety of access to you're nicer Publix. You have those kind of food stores where they sell a lot of prepackaged processed foods, not a lot of produce options. And so let's talk about that because I feel like we see a lot of that too, right? The access to the nutritious foods and how that correlates to our health outcomes as yeah. well. And, and, and I think this, the idea of the lack of access to nutritious food really hits at the intersection of your podcast, Race, Wealth, and Health. I think that This conversation is right in the middle of that because all those things interact together. And for me, it's a matter of, so one, it's a matter of life and death. I want to be very clear about that too, in in, in that we have to really, I, I say it that way because we found a way to dismiss these conversations about why people have lack of access to nutritious food. And the particular thing about this idea of food deserts is that people have allowed themselves to become infatuated with this idea of, oh, they're in a food desert, as if these people created that desert, as if these people are navigating a food desert because that's just the way it is. No, businesses intentionally did not go into those communities. And no, this is not a matter of, well, this Mm -hmm. business and they're entrepreneurs, they got to make money. No, it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that one. There's there's zoning laws that keep grocery stores from coming into communities. And when they are there, are these grocery stores, not only is the food nutritious, but also is it culturally appropriate? And a lot of businesses go into our neighborhoods, into food deserts. And in many ways, these corporations prey on food deserts, but they go in, they create these grocery stores, and then once the grocery stores fail, it's not because the grocery store failed, it's their fault. No, it's you poor Black people's fault for not supporting businesses that are trying to give y'all nutritious foods, but they're not culturally appropriate foods. You're, 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 you're prescribing something to people and not including them in the solution. 
And I think that's yeah, the give me an example of when we think about it, like what's an example of that in terms of why coming into a community but not providing the culturally appropriate Right, basically right. not being culturally responsive as a yeah, corporation. Right. So for example, it depends on what type of, of, of black community. And I say that because it depends on whether our people West Indian, are they African? Because also black, we're not homogenous. So it depends on the background. So for example, if I'm thinking about my black American background, it's a matter of there are culturally appropriate foods we grew up eating. For example, collard greens and, 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 and types of peas and types of vegetables that are inherent to our diet. And while we call it soul food now, soul food actually is a very nutritious diet. It just depends on how you cook it. I bring all this to say is that if a grocery store is going to come into a black neighborhood, then you want to make sure that you are carrying culturally appropriate foods for black people and the kind of foods they want at prices they want. So when you bring in a grocery store, you should include them into the conversations. What happens is that grocery stores come into our neighborhoods and don't include us in the actual creation of the store itself. So for example, we've seen stores come in before. We've seen Whole Foods come into neighborhoods before and they're they're pushing on this whole superfood diet and the superfood diet also has to operate in a space where you demonize other kinds of food. So that means your question is so, it's so helpful because when, when we're thinking about these grocery stores that come into particular communities, it has to also be in conversation with that community. And oftentimes when they're coming in, they're not surveying people and asking them what they want. They say we're coming in with grocery stores mm-hmm. coming in what you want already. And that's a whole different way of thinking about providing food for people is that what would happen if you ask people what they actually want? We assume that by default, people are going to eat junk food X, Y, and Z, and that's a that's a larger conversation about how particular companies uh, market in black and brown communities. What we do know is that people know how to eat healthy and they nutritious food. It's just a matter of what's available. And while we call them food deserts, a lot of these food deserts, there's a prevalence of cheap and highly processed foods and fast foods in these food deserts. So while there are no grocery stores, there's food in these food deserts. So thank you, Bobby, for that. I think that's a good point, right? The idea that there's food in these places. It's not that there isn't food, but it's like, what do we have access to? And as you mentioned, podcast is race, wealth, and health. And I think a lot about the intersection of of wealth and mm-hmm. health as it relates to food, right? Like what your socioeconomic background is determines what zip codes you can live in. Your zip code determines the community that you're in, which also d- directly relates to the grocery stores, like what you have access to. And so we see this happening, even just how redlining, just so many things. And I love this conversation because I don't think we've ever really largely thought about the intersection of food. And to your point, even when you brought up in the in the first episode about the conversation with President Johnson and, and even these grocery stores, I just think about the idea of, we have to remember we live in a capitalistic society. And so it makes sense. There aren't but so many large conglomerate grocery stores, right? When we really think about it. And so who are the power forces behind these? And what does that look like? Because of course, just like anything, they're lobbying. They're going out there lobbying for what they want. And I never even thought about food stamps in the sense of basically a subsidy, right? It's a government subsidy for grocery stores 
and what that looked like. But before I kind of get to, yeah, no, sorry. I'm going to pause there and let you, because I, I feel like you had something like, to say on that part. Like you, you, I, I feel like you should write a blurb for my book because that was the perfect, that's what I want chapter two to do is that there are so many players. Um, there are so many different people in this conversation that we have to begin to bring them into it so we can have a better analysis of how this power works. And that's, and I, and I write in the book, I say, oftentimes when we talk about food stamps, it's whether from the view of a community or from the politicians. And my question really was, what is the role of grocery stores in this conversation? And they are lobbying, and it's only a few, you're right, there's only a few conglomerates of these power, these actors, because of course you've got this big parent company, and then all of our well-known grocery stores fall under this company. But what are their interests? What are they investing in? Who are their affiliates? And what we do know is that at least in the context of the civil rights movement, the white grocery store owners were affiliated with some of the biggest white supremacists in American history. So what does it look like when your grocery store owner or yeah. your grocery store is affiliated with white supremacy? which white supremacy is predicated on the idea of black inferiority. So they're coming into a conversation already thinking that black folks don't even matter. So what does that mean when these are the people who control when, where, and how you access food? And for me, mm -hmm. that, that really that really took me into a different place. That, that was probably what I liked about the chapter was I was like, this is a lot of cool stuff. But then it also, it's cool because of the whole academic side. Oh, it's cool research, is the, oh, never seen this before. But on the other side, it's disgusting. It's the fact that people really manipulated the ways in which we could get food and by using programs, we're now beginning to think about it. Because next year actually makes 60 years since we've had food stamps, this iteration of food stamps. Food stamps were started in the 1930s, then went away. Really? Yeah. I didn't realize. So, so August 31st, next year will be 60 years since Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Food Stamp Act of 1964. So it's a big year, right? And it's a farm bill year too. So it's a lot going on. So this is a timely conversation. But I want to pick up on something you said about zip codes. And this really gets into also how I come into my work is that I recently found out that the zip code that my grandmother and my uncles lived in on the south side of Fort Worth, Texas, had the lowest mm -hmm. expectancy rate in the state. And I never knew this. But I knew going to see my grandmother and my uncles, they, they had a grocery store, but it wasn't some of the best produce and meats in that store. But that's all that my grandmother and them had. But my grandmother and my uncles all died in that zip code. And it, it's something that I, I, I really want readers to take away is that this is the, the oppression around food is so deeply embedded in our everyday lives. And that we have to really, it, it, we, we, one, we have to think about it, but then two, what does it mean now? And how do we use what we know? So I bring up that story in that I never connected the dots to how my grandmother and my uncles lived on the south side of Fort Worth until I realized that when you said zip code, I was like, zip codes really do, that they really can suggest how people, how long people live um, and how healthy they can be. And that's where... I, I think that there's so much there that at the zip code level, we can begin to uncover even deeper stories about why stores go into certain zip codes to begin with and why they don't go into certain zip codes. 
So I just want to pick up on that because when you said it, it really hit home for me. Yeah, absolutely. And as we continue bringing the conversation to today, right, we talked about food deserts and what shows up. But I think one of the things you mentioned and I wanted to touch on, because as a person who's certainly working on their health, (laughs) as you mentioned earlier, just the idea, what I think we see a lot in, in the health and wellness space today, and I follow a few nutritionists online and they talk about it, is also the demonization of certain types of foods. And so we also know there's this whole push around organic. And I mean, growing up, I don't ever remember hearing about organic because I think there's also just a shift in the quality of the food that is being provided to us versus maybe the quality of food that was provided 50, 60 years ago in terms of what we're able to buy on the shelves. Right. Right. Things are lasting longer. There's this whole organic push and and therefore a demonization of certain types of food, which typically is like you said, so or ethnic foods, ethnic right? Food, right? It's right, like, right. oh, we shouldn't be having all those carbs and all those things. I I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that in terms of how that's showing up in this larger food conversation. For me, the demonization of soul food is it's embedded in a demonization of black American culture in that one one way in which black people express or practice or experience their lives is through the food they prepare and the food that we cook. And the fact that on one hand, they're demonizing soul food, but on the other hand, you have all these new white entrepreneurs who are basically cooking our same dishes and charging a lot of money for people to get access to it. I think about when I was living in Ithaca, New York, and I forget the name of the restaurant, but they were serving collard greens, but instead of putting fat back or salt pork or turkey uh, turkey necks or something in there, they put duck fat. But the collard greens themselves cost me about 20 for a side of collard greens. And duck fat is good, don't get me wrong, but they demonized collard greens for so long, but now they've taken it and remixed it and make a lot of money on it. I'm also thinking about other restaurants uh, in the past that have done that to our food. Then also I like how we're reclaiming our food and recognizing that black eyed peas are a great source of protein. Uh, Collard greens have a lot of nutrients and vitamins in them. And for me, this whole new health and wellness space is that how do we preserve our culture and our food but also recognize how it can fuel our bodies. And also to recognize 50, 60 years ago, black folks weren't eating fried chicken and pork chop. Like I think about the movie Soul Food and that big table of food. Black folks were not uh-huh. eating that every single day. Like that wasn't a, one, one you couldn't because you were most- you could, That was expensive. That was an expensive meal. And you also growing your own food. So I'm glad you're bringing this up because I think the parallels we don't draw is that soul food and foods in general have changed over the years because of the introduction of a supermarket. So we have to read the changes in people's diets and food alongside the same history of how grocery stores have evolved. 60 years ago, there wasn't a Walmart on every corner. There wasn't a Publix everywhere. People were raising their own chickens, growing their own collard greens. And once that food ran out, that was it. They couldn't run back to the supermarket and get more foods at that time. So now we live in a supermarket generation where if I want collard greens right now, I can go get collard greens at any grocery store in this city and cook them today. 
But that's not how it was years ago. So never mind whether or not they're actually in season, because that that brings in a whole. Deal, I remember right? my grandmother growing up. We would buy collard greens, and she would say they too tough or something wrong with them because they're not in season. And you hit it right there. Is that we were used to because I, I think about that with the idea of organic, right? We naturally ate. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like what what everyone is pegging as organic is how we naturally ate back in the day. Things were yeah. fresh. Things were not used with a whole bunch of pesticides. That was how right. food and, was right. And, and we're seeing the effects of that and all of these new health conditions that are coming up and all of these ailments that people have because the quality of our food has gone down. And, and, and what, what, what I like about this conversation is that when you were speaking about organic, how we used to eat versus how we eat now, is that also when people were growing their own soul food, in quotations, and eating it, it was, it didn't have hormones in it. The chickens weren't injected with things. So now we're trying to recreate a soul food diet with chickens that have been injected with hormones and chemicals and pesticides mm-hmm. on the vegetables. So so again, it's we can't read the evolution of soul food or, or black cultures diets without reading the evolution of the kind of foods that we have to buy to adhere to our particular cultural diets. So while we like fried chicken, the chicken is no longer yard bird. You're no longer going to the backyard, getting the chicken, wringing a neck, defeathering it, and then boiling it down and then cutting up the meat. Now you're going to a grocery store that the meat has to look a certain kind of way for you to even buy it. So those who are in the whole food science world recognize that food has to look a certain way for folks to even want to buy it. So we're, we're eating the same. The culture is still there, but the quality of the food is not the same, as you made very clear, is that we didn't call it organic we, or, or free range. It wasn't free range, grass fed, this whole thing. But, but there's so much money to be right. made. Yeah, yeah like, it's, it's like, of course, the chicken with everything. We got no cages. Oh, then we had chicken coops, but the coops were designed for the eggs. There's a whole like thing behind it. And you're right that the quality of food has changed, but also it's, this pushes us or forces us to have a conversation about the evolution of grocery stores in our nation and how the introduction mm. of grocery stores, TV dinners. There's a but that was and then and then that intersects with diet culture, right? Yeah, because again, a lot of the nutritionists I've been following are kind of anti these fads and diet culture drove and it's still driving food, right? Fat yes. free. And there've been all the documentaries out there that really show you that all these things, like if it's fat free, they're pumping it up with something. It's either salt or sugar. Yeah. They're always com- compensating for taste. Whenever they remove something, they putting something else in there. And, and the government and, and, and the government regulations around certified organic. They, they they make enough space for at least 5% or something of it doesn't have to be fully organic. There can be a little bit of something in it as long as it's, as long as it's up to a certain level of being certified organic. So that's why when we were talking in the intro call, we talked about reading labels more and how we have to really start reading the labels of our food if we want to know what's in it. And, it's, and to it's, that point, to give our listeners practical tips, what are some of the things that they should look out for? Yeah, when it comes to reading the labels and just thinking about the food as we continue to try and unpack this larger thing that is at play, what are some of the things that our listeners can start doing tomorrow even in order to to move us in a a better direction, whether it's how we're shopping at grocery stores or if 
we're supplementing shopping at grocery stores by shopping at smaller markets or et cetera. I, I think for the listeners, if, if something you could do immediately in terms of thinking about going to the grocery store, it's a matter of, of you have to have the leisure too. So this is a leisure conversation too, is that also you have to have the time to actually sit down and meal prep or the time to sit down and write down what you're going to eat. And that is a luxury. People who are single parents or have to, are caretakers for their family members don't have a lot of time to be at the grocery store. And when they do go to the grocery store, do they have transportation? So I, I know people in my family who have children, they tend to make a grocery list and they're trying to get enough mm-hmm. food to ensure that they can live an active life, but also their children can as well. So one of the tips you do is that when you go to the grocery store, really figuring out what you want to eat and what do you have the capacity to hold at your home? Because I don't want to assume all your listeners have kitchens. I don't want to assume they all have refrigerators. And what we do know is that there are a lot of people who live in conditions where they don't have places to store food. So I think one of the biggest things now is to take inventory of what you're able to do at home. And is it, do you want to eat more salads? Or ultimately, what is the goal of you wanting to eat differently or eat better? And I think that's before you even get to the grocery store, having that kind of conversation. So when you go into the store, you can make informed decisions. For me, grocery shopping is a byproduct of a longer thinking exercise, if you will. And I don't think that people take a lot of time to think about a game plan for the grocery store. When I go to the grocery store, I have a game plan. People think I'm on a mission. I'm not speaking to people. I'm going to get this salad. I want this wing bar. I want a rotisserie chicken. I want gushers because I got to stop eating gushers, but I still want gushers. So I'm going to get my gushers. I'm going to get my cranberry juice and I'm wrapping it up. So when I go to the grocery store, I'm already on a mission, but I thought about it before I got there. And for your listeners, I think really taking more time and care in what you're purchasing at the store and thinking consciously about that and not being seduced by the layout of the grocery store. There's the whole food psychology piece to this that we are not going to get into, but grocery stores are designed a certain kind of way to attract a particular type yeah. of client and to get you distracted, which is why I'm on a mission when I'm in there because I know they're yeah. out to like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and don't, don't go hungry. And don't get distracted in those checkout lines when they have those little quick pickup things. You'd be like, oh, let's look. No, don't do it. I was at the story of the day, the woman in front of me, we were all just doing really good. And then she picked Starburst. And I was like, well, I need Starburst too. And then a woman after me, she picked it up too. Next thing I know, we've added four or five things to each of our carts that we had no business getting. So for your listeners, even for me, it's that having a game plan when you go to the grocery store. And if you have a goal of how you want to eat, then stick to that goal. And maybe it might look like if you have the means to maybe do Instacart, because then you won't be forced to be caught up in the store and you have to get what's on your list. But again, I don't want to assume that all your listeners have the luxury of, of living like that. Yeah. So it's, let, it's me really say, let me tell you, I don't. Between, between those delivery fees, and the way they mark up the prices because they're cheaper at the grocery store than they are mm-hmm. on said platform or any of the platforms, honestly. So that's why I I missed when a particular store was 
was a part of a prime deal and, and there was no markup right. on the grocery. Right. So the finance part of me, the wealth part, be like, mm, I can't <laughs> rationalize these extra fees. Well, right. I put it all back in the cart for $9.99 shipping, right? That's true. For $9.99 service. It's, it's all going back. Never mind. Right. Never mind. Right. I'm going to go myself. Right. But no, fair point. I think you bring up a really great point. I think the one thing I want to encourage or double click on is the idea that wherever you are is where you need to start. And, and the understanding of everybody's not going to have access to the same things. And I'm really glad that this conversation was one that is for everyone, not the idea that, oh, you need to be eating like this, or this is what you should be doing. The goal is not to shame anybody. If you have to buy those processes, there's nothing wrong with that. If you buy unorganic, it's nothing wrong with that. Even if you do your research, there are certain things that they really say are more important to get organic and it's not all things, right? If you have to pick and choose. But the goal of this conversation is to say to just try and be more informed when you do have some yeah. downtime, learn a little bit more about it, research a little bit more to just understand it and to be able to critically think about our choices and what we're doing. And so with that, before we wrap up, I just want to know what's, what's next for you, Dr. Bob? So we got this book releasing soon. What are you working on? So I'm currently working on uh, another book, uh, my next book. So early in our conversation, uh, in episode one, I talked about the African-American food and agricultural experience. So this book is about the food experience. My next book is about the agricultural experiences of Black people, but I'm thinking about it through the context of youth. And hmm. in the first book, chapter four talks about how rural black youth in Mississippi are continuing this food story that their predecessors, their ancestors created this cooperative and they're continuing this story today. Yeah. And I, I, I'll say it this way. The next book is, is really grappling with the question is that who will be the next generation of black folks who would take on these issues around agriculture and food in our communities? How are we investing in youth? There's a shortage of, of people who can go into the agricultural workforce. So we need more Black youth, not only interested in agriculture, but also going into careers in agriculture. So my next book is looking at how in the past, Black communities have placed youth at the center of a larger agrarian agricultural agenda and what that looked like for their communities and how we can use that as a blueprint, as a model to get Black youth back involved in agriculture today. We do not push our younger Black people into thinking about agriculture. And this is not just, I'm, I'm not saying everyone needs to be a Black farmer. I don't want to be a farmer, so I'm not pushing the whole everyone needs to be a farmer. What I am saying is that farming is one part of a larger agricultural world that I think Black youth should be a part of and at the center of because agriculture is still the largest industry in the nation. And there's some 13,000 jobs unfilled in the agricultural workforce. And we have all these Black youth who are graduating from high school and not finding jobs or not finding work, not going to college. What would it look like if they took up agriculture as a viable career option? So my next book is grappling with those kinds of questions. And it was on Texas. So I'm looking at how Texas historically used uh, Black youth as a critical resource to address the agricultural development of their communities. Awesome. I love that. So clearly going to be so excited to have you back on once you get yeah. that. 
up and running. And so last, but, but definitely not least, how can our viewers and listeners connect with you in terms of social media handles, anything where they can follow your work and the things that you have going on? Yeah. So Twitter is B underscore classic, C-L-A-S-S-I-C. My Instagram is Smith, S-M-I-T-H underscore classic, C-L-A-S-S-I-C. Yep. You can follow me there. I post about the book. I, I, I'm I back on Twitter. Uh, I wasn't tweeting for a while just because I was trying to finish the book. So I had to really rid myself of distractions. But now that I'm mm-hmm. slowly but surely coming back on the social media scene, feel free to follow me. I'm also open to have conversations about the book. Uh, it'll be out in two weeks from tomorrow. And then I'm happy to do Zooms. I'm happy to show up, do book talks. Please invite me to do book talks. I would love to get on the road and be in conversation. I want to also thank you for an opportunity to be on this podcast because I, I'm i so in it that I don't take a lot of time to take a step back and think more broader about what the book is doing and what, what my work is mm-hmm. doing. And I'm thankful for a chance to have these kind of conversations. And I love to be in conversation about these kinds of issues because this is what I do. I think about these issues a lot and I would love to be in conversation with people around ideas surrounding this book, but also my research in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, listen, this was such a great conversation. So much more that we could talk about and unpack, but I think we've given our listeners enough to grapple with. And so I want to thank you again, uh, Dr. Bobby Smith II, for joining me here on Waste, Wealth and Health, where the fight for justice begins. Thanks again. And we're looking forward to reading the book. I'll make sure to include uh, links to the book in the show notes and have a great day. Thank you. Sounds good. Well, that's all for today, folks. Enjoyed the show? Be sure to like and rate the podcast. You can find the Race, Wealth and Health podcast on multiple platforms, including Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe and turn on your notifications so you never miss an episode. I also want to hear from you, so don't forget to connect with me on social media. You can follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook at RaceWealthHealth. By joining the online community, you'll stay updated on the latest episodes, behind-the-scenes insights, and engaging discussions. Share your thoughts, comments, and questions there. I appreciate your support in sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and colleagues who may also find value in these conversations. Thank you again for joining me on this journey. Until next time, take care, stay informed, and keep up the good fight for equality.